Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Episode 29, Dating an Addict with Dr. Russell Sarosky. You're listening to The Race for the Ring, a podcast about dating in the digital decade. I am your host, Mindy Farnett. I'm a PR queen, a published inspirational author, motivational speaker, mom, and dating diva. Each week, I'll have a special guest dish dating dilemmas and delights with me, and together we'll maneuver how to play the game, not get played, and claim the most prized possession, self-love. Ready, set, go. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Race for the Ring. I am really excited to be with you here today. We're going to be talking about a really important topic, um, something that I have never really encountered, but I've heard from many of my dating friends um, who have encountered this situation, uh, you know, that it can be quite cumbersome. It's very, very tricky. And um, you know, we have a really great guest that's going to help us kind of navigate that um, uncharted water um, when you're dating someone who is a recovering alcoholic or drug addict or something along those lines. It could be pretty much any addict um, out there, unfortunately. Um, they are lovable and they're great to date, but there's definitely uh, more baggage that comes along with such a situation. Um, not to say that it's baggage that you can't handle or pick up. Um, it's just more, you know, items and things of that nature to be aware of. So we're going to be speaking with a neurologist and a psychologist to kind of talk to us a little bit about that. I'll, I'll introduce him in just a few minutes. In the meantime, want to thank everybody who has rated and reviewed the race for the ring you have been able to bump us up to be accepted onto the stitcher platform as well as spotify which is amazing since we haven't even been um, on the airwaves for uh six months at this point um it's still a fairly new podcast and we're at a five uh, star rating now so thank you so much um i want to give a shout out to reviewer jrod1672 who writes though i'm a first-time listener I could tell that Mindy has a way of bringing out the best in her interviewees, never an awkward pause or missed opportunity to inform. The flow is natural and upbeat. She enriched her interview with a delightful personal narratives, and it's a human factor that makes her so deliciously charming. Oh, that's nice. I've never been called that before, but I'll take it. Thank you so much, J-Rod1672. Um, if 
any of you out there listening have not done so, I would really appreciate you reviewing the podcast as well as rating. Um, it helps with the algorithm that helps people find us quicker and more efficiently. Um, and it definitely attributed to the boost and getting us on these other platforms sooner than later. So I appreciate you so, so much. Um, I want to share a little teaser for next week. Um, next week, we are indeed having another mental health expert on, um, Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. We'll be discussing coercive relationships and the control that essentially comes into play if you are dating somebody who is coercively um, abusive. Um, it's often telltale signs that are hard to find, especially if you're engrossed in a relationship with that person. Um, so she's going to help us navigate that and also give us warning signs that can be somewhat dulled and harder to see. So um, if you have any questions for Dr. Zuckerman, um, you can definitely include them in the show notes portion, comments, I guess I should say, and I'd be happy to ask her on your behalf. I have um, done so for this upcoming uh, you know, guest and um, it's great because it allows us to have a little bit of interaction with one another. So without further ado, I'm going to tell you a little bit about today's guest, Dr. Russell Sarasky. He is one of the only, or I should say the only, um, neurologist and addiction medicine specialist. He's in New York. Um, he's the only doctor in the country with these qualifications. Um, he offers an innovative approach that's helped thousands of his patients gain and maintain their sobriety effectively, which is key. When dating, as we all know, is tricky, and often, um, you know, recovering addicts don't necessarily share that information up on the first date, which is understandable, certainly. Um, and what I've researched and found is that usually that information is revealed a little bit later in the relationship phase, not necessarily months and months later, but at a point where you're comfortable with one another and obviously like the other person. So when it is revealed, what do you do? Do you stay? Do you go? How do you handle it? What are the chances of the person relapsing? And if they are relapsing, how do you know? Um, if you want to break up with them because you're just not feeling it anymore, it has nothing to do with their addiction, just them in general, and your relationship isn't serving you. What do you do like um, to handle it, obviously, with caution and care because it's obviously sensitive for them um, more so than probably someone who isn't an addict um, because you could trigger things. What are triggers? All of those questions and more are going to be answered in this episode. It's really going to be um, packed with really good information that we can really all apply into our daily lives. So we're going to look through a bit of a different camera lens today when it comes to um, this dating situation. And I am going to now pass the baton to introduce Dr. Russell Zorowski. Hi, Dr. Sarowski. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Hi, Mindy. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So we are going to dive into this topic, um, which is a little bit different than some of the things that we've talked about. We've talked about being in a relationship with someone who's narcissistic or um, maybe controlling or just, um, you know, how to break bad habits and so forth. But this is something that's an actual disease addiction, obviously. You're the expert. I'm going to let you chime in more so about what exactly is all involved in that from a, both an addict's point of view and someone who's 
is a partner in Addicts Light. But before we get into all of that, can you just explain to everybody a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what makes you different than um, other you know experts out there who help with um, addiction and recovery? Sure. So as you mentioned, my name is Dr. Sharasky. I'm a neurologist. I specialize entirely in addiction medicine and mental health uh, because as our understanding of addiction has evolved, we know that it's actually a brain disease, a brain susceptibility. Uh, so it, it definitely falls under the guise of neurology now. Uh, and so uh, I'm the medical director for an outpatient addiction treatment program, which has centers across New York called Bridge Back to Life. And I'm also in private practice in Great Neck, New York. Um, I also uh, am a national speaker for um, Vivitrol, which is a specialized treatment to help people with alcohol and opiate addiction, a once monthly injection that's a non-narcotic, non-addictive medicine. Uh, so I get to travel to rehabs and get to speak with doctors of the centers and help educate them about the latest, uh, our latest understanding of what's going on with addiction and how to help people. It's obviously on the rise. I mean, I am a former news person myself and, you know, and for my full-time gig, if you will, I'm a publicist and we do a lot of stories um, about opioid addiction and the epidemic and, you know, all of the different angles associated with that, not to mention alcoholism and things of that nature, but opioid addiction specifically has really created quite the epidemic in our country, um, more so than, you know, traditional narcotics and things of that nature. So uh, are you seeing that like you know obviously increasing um as time goes on do you think that the pandemic has made it worse like what are, what are you seeing on your end uh so absolutely it's the worst drug crisis in american history and the lockdowns have made it even worse i could tell you in the tri-state area there's been a 40 percent increase in overdoses from opiates in just the last three to wow. four months so it's really the lockdowns that have posed the risk more so than the virus itself because people aren't getting out and getting the help that they need um there are, to give some perspective here, there are about 23 and a half million people in the U.S. that have an addiction to alcohol or drugs. And if you look at the population in their 20s and 30s, which are mostly the age range that's dating, it's about one in five people. So if you've dated just a few people, you know, for the listeners on your show, if you've dated just a few people in your life, it's likely that one of them had an addiction and it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a business executive, a lawyer. Now, wealthy, not wealthy, addiction affects everyone across the board. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, right now, about 10%, only 10% of people actually get help. Because, because they're in denial and they don't think they have a problem or they don't want to get the help? It's a combination of factors. That, that's one of them. Um, the other is maybe they're not sure how to look for help, or maybe they're so mired down in their addiction, they can't even get out of it to get the help. They don't have support system around them, uh, especially with the lockdowns right now. Wow. Wow. Do you think also with the pandemic, um, before we get into the whole dating situation with, um, you know, obviously addiction, uh, do you think that because there's, there's obviously so many cases of depression, um, mental health is definitely, they're saying that the mental health situation is going to be worse than the actual pandemic itself, that we haven't even seen like the scratch surface of what's to come. Do you think that the fact that people are feeling lower in general is also attributing to the increase in addiction that we're seeing today? That's a great point, Mindy, uh, for sure. Uh, we are seeing a rise, a tremendous rise, not just in addiction relapses, but also with anxiety, depression. Uh, you know, there's, if, there's so many statistics that point to this being, you know, uh, just staggering in terms of how many people are going to the doctor for this condition, how many people are, are 
tuning into telehealth for counseling uh, or medication for newly diagnosed anxiety or depression during this time period. About 50% of the population right now is reporting that they're feeling anxious or depressed from the reporting on the news uh, and the lockdowns, the combination. Um, and also, you know, it's, it's really just uh, crazy, but the, the medication Zoloft has now been put on, you know, which is an antidepressant slash anti-anxiety medication is now on the drug shortage list because of the spike of prescriptions during the lockdown. So it's oh, pretty wow. scary That's, right now. I yeah. didn't realize that. Wow. Scary. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you're absolutely right. That's, that's really unfortunate and sad, um, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as a, as we parlay into the dating world, it's already, um, obviously not always the most fun field to play in, right. Um, in general and in a good time. And then the COVID climate made it even more troublesome for many people, myself included, frankly. And then obviously when you're out and about, you don't necessarily know if someone is a recovering addict, if they're on the, uh, the recovered addict, I should say, even though it's always an ongoing battle and something they have to be mindful of and work at, I'm imagining every day. Um, so what, what advice would you you have in terms of if you are dating and you're not the recovered, you know, recovering addict, but you're the, you just found out that your partner or your suitor, I guess I should say is what, what advice would you give to people? Like, what are some of the signs that they should watch for in terms of, you know, um, someone who isn't fully recovered, they say they are like things of that nature. So I think one thing that's important, you know, based on the title of, of the show Mm -hmm. is I want to speak first about this, if you don't mind, um, about mm -hmm. the term addict, uh, because language is very important. Okay. Addict is a term that we're moving away from in treatment because it's, it's, it has a derogatory context and it's stigma producing. And most of the time, it's not accurately used. Okay. Because it, it, it defines, it, it kind of defines someone's entire identity based on a susceptibility they have in their brain. Right. That, and we don't I can see that. I can definitely exactly. see that. Yeah. And so we, we don't say, you know, my friend, the leukemic, you know, so rather than saying <laughs> yeah. someone is an, an addict, we either say they have an addiction or what really technically doctors say is a substance use disorder. So okay. someone will have alcohol use disorder or opiate use disorder. And since we've come to understand that addiction as core is really, um, a neurological issue, it, it, it boils down to, the, to a susceptibility of the brain to get hijacked by drugs or alcohol that some people have, and it's to no fault of their own. It's, it's a predisposition like any other illness, not a moral problem or anything like that. And we know this through advanced brain imaging uh, that we have now. So, you know, this is a definitive uh, neuro neurology understanding we have. Um, now, listen, if, if someone is actively using drugs, if you're in a relationship with someone who is actively using drugs, they're not in treatment, it is a very serious situation for a number of reasons, which we could get into, but um, it's difficult at best. It's very unpredictable and it can be dangerous um, for both of you. And uh, if, you, if you want, I could sort of talk about um, the, the different treatments that are out there, what to do and what not to do, I think. And that, that, that is very confusing for a lot of people. Okay. Yeah, we can. But I guess before we get into that, let's just say for argument's sake, um, the substance abuse um, person is, is recovering, right? Or they're recovered mm -hmm. um, and they are dating now. Um, 
is, and they reveal to their, their person that they're dating, maybe a couple dates in or however long, you know, but there's been a connection made. It's not like a first date conversation, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you find out that indeed this person is, um, you know, they battle with this and it's an ongoing lifelong battle, regardless Mm -hmm. of where you are in your journey. What advice would you give to the person who just found out this information? Like, okay. Like what kind of personality or person or source of strength does one need to uh, basically possess to be able to be a good girlfriend or boyfriend of somebody who um, deals with this? So I think, as you mentioned before, it's important to understand that, you know, if someone actually is in real recovery and you know that to be true, whether it's a 12 step program or other means, there's a far better chance that they now can be a good partner for you. But you got to keep in mind that a person who's dealing with this issue is never quote unquote cured because mm-hmm. it's a susceptibility that's lifelong. That doesn't mean they're destined to keep relapsing. It means if they use once, it's unlikely to stay in control. So sobriety that goes on forever is possible, but it's handled by that person one day at a time with diligence and a connection to a program. So they people can make excellent partners even if they suffer with addiction, but you need to allow them as a partner to continue their recovery practices, um, you know, go to their meetings when they need to go because it's vital to their health and to your relationship. And I just, you know, I want to say on a positive note here uh, that people in recovery are generally working on themselves, which is, you know, working to better themselves and their relationships and their attitudes and behaviors. So most people outside of recovery aren't doing that. So again, people in recovery can, can make excellent partners. Uh, so I don't want to paint this grim picture, mm-hmm. um, but you just, you just need to be aware that it's a lifelong journey and process for them. And mm-hmm. so that if they have certain things they need to do, it's, it, it is very serious that they, get, that, that they keep that in their life. Maybe they make better partners, actually. <laughs> now that you're saying that, there's a lot of people that I've dated that really need to work on themselves that don't, you know? I mean, I can probably on both hands count the people. I'm myself uh, included, yeah. I guess, sometimes too. I'm not perfect, but like, it's always good to be connected to somebody, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a program or a therapist or whatever it may be to keep your feet grounded, correct? Uh, I think you hit on a very good point there. <laughs> um, yes. I would say that uh, there's no reason to write somebody off or think that you can't have a wonderful life with them simply because they're in recovery. Yeah, I agree. Okay, we have a few questions um, from some of our listeners. I don't want to neglect to ask on their behalf. And then I want to dive into um, relapses and triggers and like things like that. Okay, so Madison from Philadelphia, PA, asks you, Dr. Swarovski, at what point should someone consider leaving a partner with an addiction? I don't want to break up to trigger my partner to relapse. I'm, I'm interpreting this to mean that they are not falling, I hate this expression, but falling off the wagon or whatever you're saying. Um, it's just maybe this person doesn't want to maintain the relationship for whatever reason unrelated to you know, this um, substance abuse situation, um, but they're afraid to break up with a person because they don't want that person to fall backwards. Or what would you say? Yeah, and it's such a, a great question. Uh, and I hear it daily from people. Do you? Uh, okay. I do. Yeah, okay. it's, it's well, I mean, the, the epidemic of addiction is everywhere. So and people are in relationships. And so this is a common uh, thing that can certainly happen. Uh, and it's really a difficult position because you may really care for this person, but you see that they're doing, engaging in destructive behaviors uh, and they just, you just can't seem to get them to stop. I think the first thing to understand is that 
you have to look at addiction truly as a, a medical illness. And, and it's, it's, I think it's hard sometimes to wrap your brain around it. Like, oh, well, they can just use their willpower or, you know, if they love me enough, then they would stop. You know, uh, they must not care about me enough. You know, I think that you, you can't, you really shouldn't think that way because it's not accurate. Drugs take over a part of the brain that is extraordinarily powerful and they hijack that system. And the drive to use the drug becomes more important to even a basic survival drives, which is why we see people who are addicted. It seems like they're losing everything in their life and they keep on going. And to mm -hmm. someone on the outside looking in, you would say, well, that's not rational. Why would they do that? Because, and again, if we have time, we can certainly get into it, but it, it hijacks an area of the brain that's not even a conscious area and then drives that person to look for that drug all the time. So with that in mind, um, now that's not permanent what's happening to that person. That can be reversed and they can get better against, and then so long as they stay away, they can have a normal life. Mm -hmm. um, so helping them is something you can absolutely do. And, you know, a couple of ways you can do that is you can, if you're in, um, I don't know if you're in New York, but you mentioned that, I think you're the caller. I'm in, in New York. Yeah. I mean, okay. but the, obviously not all of our sure. listeners are, but yeah. Yeah. Sure. So um, the best thing you can do is you can look for, um, well, certainly you can look for a private physician in, the, in their insurance or other, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the insurance, but an easy way, mm -hmm. easy thing to do is to pull the number on the back of the insurance card and ask for an addiction specialist. Now, it can be easier said than done because there just aren't a lot of them. Um, and so another avenue you can take is you can look, go to LICAD, L-I-C-A-A-D, and dot um, com. And they will help connect you with an outpatient program uh, nearby in your zip code. And what will happen there, those outpatient programs um, have counselors and a doctor. And when, if you go there or you get your partner to go there, they're evaluated and what kind of care they need, whether it's inpatient, like a hospital, if they need detox or they need outpatient program or 12 mix, they're evaluated and what they need medically and counseling is determined at the outpatient program. And they could then either stay there or be referred elsewhere. So the important thing for you to do is you can certainly always help that person, but it is important to learn the difference between providing support and enabling the addicted person to continue to use the drug. So Wait, what is the uh, difference? Can you explain? Sure. So if you're, um, you know, if what you're doing is that person is continuing to use the drugs and then they're um, saying to you, well, um, I promise I'll stop tomorrow. You know, can I borrow some money or, um, you know, anything that they're asking for that you believe helps them enables their ability to keep using the drugs mm -hmm. uh, is not obviously a behavior that's going to help them. You know, sometimes uh, it's, you think, okay, they promised this time. I'll just, I'll help them out this one more time. I'll let them borrow money and then tomorrow they will get help. That never helps the situation. So mm -hmm. um, I think that you need to do everything you can not to enable that person. Mm -hmm. And you need to um, help them, you, you know, basically use all the leverage you have, understanding that it's an illness, but then that person may not be thinking clearly. You have to use all the leverage you have as a partner to get them to get help because no matter what they're thinking or saying at the time they're using drugs, it's not really them. So what you need to do is you have to get them help so they can think more clearly. And the only way to do that is maybe to use your leverage when they're in a drug state, uh, you know, when they're using, use your language, uh, your leverage to help get them to a program and then things will change dramatically once they get help.
Okay. That makes sense. That's really good advice and information. All right. Haley from Albany, New York is asking you how long should you, how long should someone rather wait before beginning a relationship while recovering from addiction? I'm trying to enter the dating scene, but I'm hesitant. It sounds like to me that Haley is probably a recovering substance abuse person. Um, I read a little bit. I don't know why. I don't know if she's in obviously treatment or if she's ongoing. Um, but at any rate, I read that you're supposed to wait a year. Is that right? Before dating? Yes. Yeah, so um, listen, conventional thinking and through experience, what we see is that in early recovery, less than a year, say, uh, mm -hmm. when somebody doesn't have sobriety for a good amount of time, uh, mm -hmm. relationships usually spell disaster. And that's because, you know, you can't be leaning on someone who themselves can't be leaning on you because they, they need help. Mm. And so, and um, relationships not going smoothly is a, tr is a very big, perhaps one of the biggest triggers that there is for relapse. So we often see that um, relationships are more likely to cause harm than good. And if you have a solid year of sobriety, your conventional thinking, and I agree with it, from my experience is that you really should try to wait a year before getting into a relationship. There's a lot of introspective work that has to go on in recovery. And, you know, people getting into a relationship is a recipe for essentially not doing that and just sort of um, looking for someone else to make you feel better. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Okay. All right. That's good advice too. Um, Antonia from Middleton, Connecticut is asking, she has two questions for you. Number one, is it okay for two newly recovering addicts to date? I guess the answer would be no, but I'll let you say it. And how can you repair a relationship after addiction, specifically a family friend relationship? Okay, so yeah, to the, to the first question, um, as you said, Mindy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, look, we advise against relationships uh, in early recovery. Um, it's not to say that they can never work. Certainly it's possible, but the risk is so great and the danger is so big to your life should you relapse and go back to using drugs, you know, particularly opiates. Uh, right now, all the drugs are cut with all kinds of other drugs like fentanyl and all it takes is one time uh, and your life could be over. So we, we really try to put those rails up in early recovery so that right now we have 150 people dying from overdoses a day so in the time it takes you to eat lunch today, someone will die. And wow. that's, that's not overdose because a lot of overdose people get saved. They get Narcan or they get uh, medicine from the ambulance. That's actually people who actually die. So a lot more will overdose. And none of those people said, I want to kill myself today. It was simply, I want to use one more time, but I'll stop tomorrow. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, that's why we really try to do everything we can to get someone into a program and not and, and keep and, and stay out of intimate relationships for that first year. And if you don't mind, just I understand the basic premise of the second question, but can you just say it again? I want to hear from Mr. Absolutely. Sure. So the second part was, and how can you repair a relationship after addiction, specifically a family friend relationship, like maybe your mom or your dad or cousin or sister, brother, et cetera, as my guess. So, Look, in most situations, um, you know, relationships, you know, it, addiction, it rips across friendships and, and family, you know, relationships, uh, because in order to keep an addiction going, there's so many behaviors you have to do 
that cause problems and destruction to relationships, lying, mm -hmm. cheating, scamming, stealing, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, one goes with the other. You can't do one without having the other behaviors. So um, I, you know, a lot of times relationships really go into disrepair during that time. Now, the only way essentially that, that I, I believe that people can mend those relationships is with sobriety. And, and what I mean by that is talk with recovery. Talk is very cheap. Um, saying that I'm going to be sober again, or I'm not going to use drugs this time. You know, people have, around you may have heard that many times. Mm -hmm. So even if you, even if they tell you that they believe you, um, they probably don't. And for good reason, because you have to show with your, with your feet that you are doing the work and that you're staying sober. And in, in my experience, most of the time, the e, you know, even when you think relationships can't be repaired because of all the damage that was done, when someone truly sees that you're sober and your life has changed and they see that, oh, wow, this person's doing the work, you know, it, it, um, people's lives change entirely when they get into sobriety. It's incredible what, what comes back to them and how they change. And when people see that for real, I see relationships really mending. But you can't simply come into recovery, you know, in two days and say to somebody, why don't you believe that I'll be sober? Uh, I can't believe you're doing this to me. That's not fair. You know, right. I think that you have to give people a chance to get better. And they, in turn, have to give you, they, they in turn, have to understand that they need to show you that they're better. That makes that sense. Makes, it makes okay. a huge difference. All right, great. Let's get into some of the triggers, doctor. Um, I know you mentioned um, dating too soon is a, one of the biggest triggers, or if not the biggest trigger. My first question is why? And secondly, what else would be, I guess, maybe your top five triggers for people if they are, um, you know, in a, in a program and they're on their way to, you know, maintaining that clean path, so to speak, um, but they're dating somebody. Like, this is more for the people that may not be a recovering substance abuse person um, so that they don't become a trigger or create a trigger for someone. Like for me, for instance, and not to keep on talking and confuse you, <laughs> I, oh. I know um, at one point I was dating somebody very short-lived, but nevertheless, and uh, he was a, a recovering alcoholic, and I didn't know if I should order a glass of wine. Like, I was afraid, but that's, like, something I tip. I don't drink a lot, but, like, I usually have a glass or two with dinner if I go out to dinner with someone or by my, wherever I am, um, but I didn't because I didn't know if that would be rude or, you know what I'm saying? Like, things like that. Absolutely. Uh, great question. Uh, triggers are really, you know, people, places, and things because, and there's a lot of science behind that. When, when somebody engages in a behavior that spikes up certain neurotransmitters and you know, dopamine in that subconscious, what we call the limbic system of the brain that causes the addiction, that mm -hmm. sets it off, the brain records the people, places, and things that are going on around that person at that time. Now, that was a survival mechanism that we as humans have to help find that, that where we got that food again or to, you know, to help remember details about where we had that normally healthy, pleasurable experience. But when somebody's brain has been hijacked by a drug and they have addiction, that if they're, in, if they're exposed to people, places, or things that the brain recalls on a subconscious level had to do with how and when they use that substance, that area of that brain, that limbic system, all the way in the back by the brainstem, which people do not have control over, can light up and it can send signals to their thinking brain and start to um, chip away at it and, 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 and sort of, um, you know, make them feel 
that it's okay. You know, you could have one drink, you know, you've been sober for X amount of time, or you could try that drug one more time. And that becomes a difficult thing for a person to fight up against. And we really try to avoid that. So, you know, you're right not to order that drink at dinner. And I know that that can- Oh, it is the right thing to do? You shouldn't do that? Okay, Uh, okay. So I would tell you if I had a family member or a loved one in that situation, I would not bring them around those things. Um, Because now that sounds, I know, very disruptive perhaps to some people's life. And some people may refuse to do that. But we know the science of this. And we know that addiction, what happens in someone's life is awful. Uh, uh-huh. if they don't get better. And we know that if they're exposed to triggers, you know, even if they've been sober for five, 10 years, those, the, the, the neurology of it, it doesn't go away. Yeah. So um, in other words, we know on the National Geographic, I can get you this article not that long ago, did a full uh, cover story about this. They used very advanced imaging to look at people's brains um, 10, 20 years after their last drug use and showed them um, uh, triggers, pictures, place and things and within milliseconds even before a person could register what they were seeing their limbic area was lighting up on those scans so wow. point, yeah so this is science-based we know what's going on we know where it's going on and we know how to help people but we also know that if you can avoid triggers you really should yeah i, I mean i've read too like even if there's like a, a a toxic person like you have a bad relationship with a parent or whatever like that could be a trigger too like it's certain people um and you yeah. know going back to an unpleasant childhood home or something could be a trigger right yes and if we have a minute do we can i expand a little bit yeah please okay yeah i think so, it's so interesting yeah yeah no i mean so i'll give you some classic examples that i see all the time a person will say to themselves, okay, you know what? I've been sober for a year or whatever the time frame may be. I can go into a bar and I'm just going to have a seltzer and I'm going to prove to myself that I can do this. And so that person goes into the bar and they, they see the sights and the sounds, people, you know, getting intoxicated, uh, the bartender serving the drinks, the, the clanging of the glasses, you know, all those things. Mm. And, and in that moment, they stay sober and they only order the seltzer and they walk out and they say, you see, I did it. But what actually happens a lot of times is now that area of the brain starts going to work and starts reminding that person, now there's a dream. And then the next day it's a, it's a thought and the next day it's a craving. And what we find is that that person may stay sober in that, that moment in time, but now it brings the relapse even closer into their life. It makes them more on shaky ground, whether they like it or not, that's how this works. So we really try to avoid those. Another thing uh, all happens all the time is I have patients that will tell me, Oh, I'm going on a cruise. Most of these cruises are like floating bars. <laughs> yeah, so, they are. It's so true. Yeah, and, and, and it's has gross, to, cheap alcohol usually as well. But I guess it doesn't really matter <laughs> to someone it, who's recovering. Well, yeah. Yes. And Ugh, people are, yeah. and the waitresses are walking around with these trays of colorful drinks all over yeah. the place. And everyone has the drink packages. And, you know, and, and my patients will go on these cruises and they say, no, I can be sober on a cruise. And they do stay sober on the cruise. But then they've been sober five years. They get back from the cruise. Three days later, there's a relapse. It's not coincidental. Yeah. And so, um, of course, it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy your life and have fun and go out and do things. And it doesn't even mean that everyone will relapse just because they're exposed to a trigger. But if you're doing the things that you, you know, you're trying to do uh, to help somebody, then you don't put them in the lion's den. 
Right. Well, not to compare, but I will, um, you know, if you have a, just like a, you know, an autoimmune disease or something of that nature, like a friend of mine has Crohn's disease and she eats gluten and certain foods, like she flares up. Like it's sort of like the same, why, but she doesn't because she wants, she wants the pizza, but she's not eating the pizza because, you know, she doesn't want to be sick. So it's sort of like, I guess it's similar if you think of it that, I mean, less of like, oh, my life is not fun kind of no. mentality. It, you yeah. know, I, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think it's just a little harder because people don't understand addiction as well. And it's yeah. still sort of like a willpower yeah. thing. Yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah. oh, come on, just suck it up and stay sober. We're going on the cruise, you know, but really... That's not, that's not an accurate portrayal. Yeah. 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 You may have addressed this already. I'm just interesting. This is so not on topic of what the show is, but I'm just going to be my medical reporter self that I used to be. So that addiction area that you mentioned in the brain, um, everybody has that like why, or some people are just more prone to that. Um, And then how does that work? Sure. If you can I'm, dumb I'm, that I'm, down I'm, for our listeners no, out there. I'm so glad you're, you're asking this question. I'm glad we have time because it's so important. Um, you know, there's an area of the brain, again, it's called the limbic system. Uh, it's made mm-hmm. up of a lot of structures, but the name is the limbic system. And think of it almost as like the reptilian brain. It's a part of our brain that's there for survival drives, like the drive to, to mate, the drive to, um, uh, to, to eat. Uh, the dr- dr- it runs our autonomic nervous system, all the trillions of cells in our body all the organ systems, we can't do that with our frontal cortical brain, our rational thinking brain. We don't have control over those things because nature didn't want us that we wouldn't know how to do those things. So all that comes from a, a part of the brain called the limbic system. Now, the, what we understand now from this advanced imaging is that when somebody who is genetically susceptible, you have to, you, there's a degree of susceptibility that needs to be there. Mm-hmm. But if you expose somebody's brain, who, which is susceptible, it's not just about the drug. It's about the person's brain and how the drug interacts with their brain. Mm-hmm. So if someone exposes their brain, which happens to be susceptible to no fault of their own, it can easily get hijacked. It hijacks that limbic area in near the brainstem. And what happens is it now gets that drug, now gets a seat at the table with other survival drives of life, like food, sex, these sort of things. So now what happens is the limbic area starts driving the has tons of the limbic system is the most powerful driver of our behavior think about when you're hungry for food you try to resist that with your thinking brain you, you give up you can't do it it makes you right right so or that chocolate chip cookie last night yeah. that I, was, <laughs> I had two of instead of one but go ahead no yeah, you're, yeah, you're totally yeah. right you're yeah. right um and that's you just hit on something like binge eating disorder that is an addiction and that not you know not having a cookies and binging disorder but i mean I people know. who suffer with that it all happens in this other area of the brain. And, and, and so the hijacking happens and now the limbic system is putting that priority of that drug as if it's like food. And so that's why we see people that are addicted to opiates say, looks like they're losing all the all kinds of weight and everything. It's because that person doesn't even care about food anymore. They just want the drug. And right. if, if you needed any evidence that someone's brain is completely hijacked, there you go. They're not even eating. And so that's what happened. So this limbic area now, now is looking for that drug every day, like it's the most important priority. And the rational brain, the other area of the, of the brain sees the destruction. It's not that the person doesn't see all the destruction that's going on in their life. They see it. The problem is, is that this other part is much more powerful by design. And so every day the person's brain does this. Um, okay, well, um, you look at all this destruction. We have to stop. Things are only going to get worse. But the other area, the limbic area says, okay, that's fine, but we need it today and we'll fix it tomorrow. And it, 
and that's what happens. The person uses the drug, and then tomorrow it's the same battle between the brain, and the unlimited error keeps winning day after day until, God forbid, something terrible happens, unless the person gets help. Yeah, wow, wow. Okay. Well, thank you for clearing that off. Sure. That was a good explanation. Um, my last question, I mean, I have a million more, but we're unfortunately out of time. Yeah. So um, for people out there um, who are, I guess, um, a recovering substance abuse uh, situation person, would, I mean, if you don't have a crystal ball, but if you had to pick a time frame, when is the best time to kind of open up and share with your person you're dating that you are, you know, recovering and this is something that's part of your life um, from the beginning, first date, uh, maybe date five, a month in, like, is there a right time in your opinion? Well, I, I think you probably know that nothing, nothing like that is cookie cutter. It's not black and white. Of course, it depends on the person, uh, mm -hmm. to the people. You know, you have to be with someone, obviously, who you feel comfortable with, who you feel like, um, you know, you have, obviously, uh, you can trust and you have good communication. I don't know that's necessarily, look, there's, it's, not a, it's not black and white, right and wrong. You can certainly reveal to somebody on, on the first date that you're in recovery and some people feel more comfortable, like, oh, let me just get this out of the way so yeah. that I don't, I don't start to like this person and then they reject me because I, I throw this at them. And I understand that. Um, but at the same time, I think that um, I think anyone would understand if they were dating someone that, you know, if that person let them know after there was some, uh, you know, deeper uh, communication uh, on, you know, between the, the two of you, uh, mm -hmm. I think people would understand that, okay, this is something that's maybe a personal uh, journey for them and they didn't want to share it on a first date. I think most people would understand that. Uh, I, so I don't think it's it's right or wrong. I think it's really up to you and what you're comfortable with, um, you know, and, uh, you know, but, it, but, but first and foremost, uh, there are a couple of things I want to make sure everyone knows. First, that people in recovery are not destined to keep relapsing. They can stay sober, but they okay. need to, they need to be connected to a program. And okay. I, w I would be concerned if they weren't. The okay. second thing is that we have tremendously effective new and with our new understanding about where addiction affects the brain we have tremendous um, uh, optimism now we have medications that we didn't have before that can quiet and help heal that limbic area and that can go along of course with counseling because people need to sort of change the way they're living and, and cut people out of people placing things out of their lives and that mm -hmm. can only come from counseling not medicine but the medicine really goes to the area of the brain that the person can control and it can help them tremendously, whether it's opiate addiction, alcohol addiction, even binge eating disorder. We know where these things are happening and we have fantastic tools that we didn't have just a couple of years ago. Like I mentioned, Divitrol, fantastic mm -hmm. medicine, non-addictive. And the, I mean, we're just seeing such dramatic changes in how we can help people now. That's wonderful. That's great yeah. to hear. What made you go into this type of medicine? Just curious. Well, when I came out of residency uh, in, in, at Northwell Hospital Systems in New York, I was doing pain management primarily. Uh, and in my first year, it was sort of the height of the opiate epidemic. And uh -huh. I was seeing that everyone coming through the door, you know, essentially everyone coming through the door uh, was addicted to opiates. And wow. I didn't want to be yet another doctor at the time, at least, who was enabling uh, there were so many doctors who were enabling patients and just refilling yeah. these prescriptions, watching their life fall apart and keep refilling and refilling these prescriptions. And I just did not want to, I didn't want to be part of that. I didn't want to be on that side of things. So 
I saw the writing was on the wall and I said, I'm going back to get training and how to help these people in a real way. And that's what I did. And I that's never so back. amazing. What a great difference you're making in lives and saving lives and so forth and families. So thank you for yeah. everything that you do. I appreciate it. I'm sure our Thanks. listeners do too. So tell yeah. everybody, um, Dr. Sarasky, how can we find you? If you know somebody that needs help or maybe you need some service, um, support, et cetera, how can people find you? Uh, well, uh, you can go to my website at drsaraski, which is D-R-S-U-R-A-S-K-Y.com. And uh, we can certainly, um, we are taking new patients, um, but if you do need a referral to a, uh, an intensive outpatient program or an inpatient program, we can help you with that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, also on Instagram at Russell Saraski, MD, uh, and um, available by email at contact at drsaraski.com. Okay, great. And we'll include all that in the show notes too. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here and everything that you're doing and stay safe out there. Thank you so much, Mindy. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Race for the Ring. If you liked today's episode, please write us a review. They can make or break a good podcast just like a dull dude can be the kiss of death to a date. I'll catch you next week. And in the meantime, Be sure to say hi and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My handles and contacts are in the show notes. It's been my pleasure to have you along for today's dating debate. Bye-bye. This episode of The Race for the Ring was brought to you by Furco's Fine Jewelry. The family-owned, multi-generational family jeweler is known for their handcrafted custom designs. Not only do they create stunning rings, they have an incredible array of personalized gemstones, personalized pieces, and of course, diamonds. Follow them on Instagram at Furco's Fine Jewelry or head over to their website at furcosfinejewelry.com. And if you use code MINDY15 when checking out, you'll get 15% off your first purchase. Happy shopping! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.